Welcome to Hope Through the Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. I'm Steve Norman with Winning at Home. Welcome to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Peter Newhouse as my guest today. Peter is the CEO of Winning at Home. He's also the creator and leader of the Winning at Home Counseling and Coaching Centers, which have grown to over 25 professionals in three locations, in Holland and Zealand here in West Michigan, and also Tampa Bay in Florida. These centers offer services for children, adolescents, and adults. Peter and his wife, Sean Marie, have been married for over 30 years and have three adult children. Peter, thanks so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Steve. Peter, talk to me a little bit about your faith story. Where did it start and how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, I'm super blessed. I grew up in a family um, with great parents. Uh, Mom and dad loved each other. And far from perfect, mom and dad loved each other, made sure we went to church every Sunday. Yep. And we're never late. I don't, I don't ever remember missing a Sunday ever in my whole childhood. Um, so they were very faithful um, attending and very committed to their faith. And I was one of seven kids. So family was huge. And even our extended family was huge, literally and figuratively. It was huge, very important to us. And so I grew up in a, a really solid Christian, Lutheran, Christian family and uh, followed that through my childhood. It was part of youth group and the church um, services, Sunday school, all that good stuff, which is really formative and really good. Memorized a lot of verses and things through childhood. I really would say that I didn't make my faith my own until I attended uh, Taylor University, where I know you went as well, and went there with I would say a committed faith and my faith mattered, but it wasn't till Taylor and some of the great professors that poured into me and the great chapels that we were a part of, that we attended, that really said, okay, this is what really matters to me. This is going to be a huge part of my life going forward and a huge part of my relationship. So um, again, grew up in a great Christian family, but for sure it wasn't until Taylor that I can remember two or three times where I really committed myself and my life to following Jesus and really making him, when I talk to other people about now and my own kids, about making him Lord of my life versus just a part of my life. So. Peter, was there a moment or a season? Could you put could you put like a place or a face on some of those catalytic moments for you? Absolutely. Yeah, I think a couple of different chapel services um, or concerts um, where people had come in and performed and just really felt like God really tugged on my heart. There's a really specific um, time and place and time, and I won't get into all the details, but just, yeah, where I felt literally no question at all that this is what I'm supposed to do with my life, which in my case was be a counselor, a psychologist. I was a psychology major. And was supposed to be a counselor and rooted the counseling in a Christ-centered way. So really connecting my faith with the counseling, the psychology. And so that was going on. And then also just uh, really felt led specifically to commit to being um, a Christ follower in, in all areas of my life. So, Peter, now you act as a clinician, but you also oversee clinicians. Mm-hmm. What's what's the favorite part of what you get to do these days? That's the worst and the best of it. Okay. I, I like it all. I, it's really hard to go, okay, I love writing. When I get a chance to write some books and co-author some books, that's a blast. And I love it. This past weekend, like yourself, we I, I got the chance to travel and speak a little bit. I love doing that. Now, again, I don't love that the most, but I love doing that. Sure. I love being able to do that. I'm on site at businesses and working with employees, whether they're top senior level management or blue collar folk. 
it doesn't matter. It's just a lot of fun talking with people, meeting with people where they're at emotionally, relationally, meeting where they're at location-wise. I just feel super honored to be able to do that. And I love our team. I love counseling one-on-one or with couples in my office and working with our team, managing our team. We just have an amazing team. And I'm super biased, but I love our team. I love the group that we have here and just the fact that how faithful they are and how they just love doing life together. And we're all on mission to try to have impact um, in our community and around our world. It's great. Peter, a lot of the therapists that I've had the privilege of talking to here at Winning at Home have populations or themes that they kind of gravitate towards. What, what would you say are the people groups or the personal growth issues that you like to zero in on? Yeah, I feel like we have a great team that can manage and speak into situations way better than I can in a lot of areas. So that's one of the reasons I love our team is I feel like we have different people that are really adept at working with. So like an adolescent female, back in the day when it's me by myself or me and a couple other people, you just grab whoever you know you can and help as many people as you can. And you kind of specialize. Or you go, yeah, it's probably isn't my sweet spot or my favorite thing or my best thing I'm good at. But, hey, this family needs help, and I'm going to jump in and help them. Or some other variety of issues. For me personally at this point, being in my early 50s, um, I think meeting with people that are in their 50s and 60s that have adult children, that are empty nesters, that are um, sorting out kind of the final stages of their career and just figuring out like their legacy, things like that. And I think meeting with business leaders that are kind of in that stage too, like in their 50s and go, okay, what, what, what am I leaving behind? What impact am I having? And just really looking at how I want to finish my career and or finish my life. So I think a lot of business leaders, a lot of uh, folks that are nonprofit leaders, pastors, missionaries, I think any leader I just really enjoy meeting with. I get to work a lot with missionaries. And I think I love and get excited about working with them because I know if I impact them, they're going to feel better, hopefully function higher, be happier, those kind of things. But way more importantly, they're going to have huge impact or the potential to have huge impact on their congregation, their company, the, the country they work in or whatever it might be. So that's the kind of thing I get excited about. Is And then there's a whole variety of couples and relational dynamics and things like that that um, I can deal with and enjoy dealing with. But honestly, we have a great team of people that love doing marital work or love doing, you know, adolescent work or depression or anxiety. And I I deal with all that stuff too, but usually it's specifically for a leader type person. Great. Peter, you and I have talked about how stress is just kind of a running theme in the lives of every person and certainly a lot of the clients that we have the opportunity to interface with. Families experience stress in different ways in different seasons. Mm -hmm. How, How does stress manifest itself for young families in a way that's unique from some of the people in the life stage that you just described? Yeah, I think young families have more stress than they've ever had. And sometimes I get tired of hearing that, but then I step back and I look at it and I look at the demands of all the social media and crazy stuff going on, all the electronics, that even as my kids are all in their 20s and married and stuff, they didn't, we didn't have that. I just didn't have to deal with it. I remember vowing, my wife and I vowing, that we're never going to let our kid, a, a child of ours, have a telephone in their room um, or a TV. Well, by the end, which our youngest is now 22, by the end of it, she had a cell phone, she had a couple computers, and that's become the norm. 
sure. kids have. So I think it's just a lot more complex for younger families and the temptations, the struggle, the materialism, all the electronics, all the um, social media. That's just, it's really complex and, and tough that people that are in their 50s and 60s just didn't have to deal with and have a hard time relating to in a lot of ways. Um, I think a lot of um, younger families just have a lot of stress, too, around trying to um, manage all the different financial things that are going on in our world and trying to uh, honestly attain success very early and feel like they have to have everything in their house in order financially. And I think that adds a lot of stress as well. It seems like those stressors never really go away. They just evolve mm, over time. Sure. Like I, Mike, Kelly and I, we've got four kids. Mm. We used to think that like, man, once we can get everybody out of diapers, we'll be golden. Absolutely. And then it was like, once we can teach everybody how to ride a bike or once we can teach everybody how to do their own homework, then, then, but there's always another hill over Correct. on the other side of that hill. Correct. Yeah, I, I agree totally. And I, and I think that's one thing I try to live out and encourage other people too with the stress factor of when this happens, then I'll be happy or I'll feel content or satisfied. And although there is an element of that when you hit a milestone or everybody's in school or everybody's out of diapers, you do hopefully feel a little sense of relief or peace about it. But I think it's easy to get sucked into that whole idea of just like, when this happens, then I'll feel better. I can see that happening for us even um, going, I feel good about all of our kids now being I'm married, all of them being out of college and on their own. And I do feel good about it. Um, but yeah, you always go, okay, what's next? What should we be doing here? What should we be doing here? And I think a lot of people my age worry about retirement, worry about finances. A ton of people talk to me consistently. In fact, I just had a conversation just minutes ago with someone about their adult children. How do I engage them well? What do I do to have impact in their lives while respecting their boundaries and their relationships. So there's there's a lot of complexity in that of parenting adult children and adult children, significant others, whether they're spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever it might be. Peter, a friend just sent me a link to an article in The Atlantic yesterday talking about the, the recent phenomenon of parents and adult children being estranged from one another and how there's been a significant uptick in that even in the last decade. And one of the writers was saying, like, just the world that we live in tells our children, as they become adults, that they always have a right to be happy. And if there's anything that's making them unhappy, it's probably the fault of somebody who reared them. And they can just kind of go back. And, and there's this concern that some parents are saying, like, wait a second, I, I feel like my kid is reinterpreting 20 years of history and coming up with a different conclusion. And so that's a stressor all on its own. We, we like to think that, oh, if we get our kids graduated from college, or we get them married on their feet or gainfully employed and productive member of society, then the work is done. But it, But it's not. Not at all. Not at all. And you, you just did this to yourself too recently, I think. You introduced some really cool things to your kids in other parts of the country. Yeah. And we used to always do that too and, and created some of the wanderlust in them and awareness of this outside world. And they're like, well, we love Michigan, but man, Florida and California, other places are a lot of fun too. And the climate's different and the people are different. And you're right. Sometimes it turns out where they really dislike their family life, they start reinterpreting their family life and what happened and even the culture they grew up in and the area of the country they grew up in maybe. But I think a lot of times too, it's just different than, you know, whenever 20, 30, 40 years ago where people stayed in the same town they were raised sure. in, stayed close to their parents, really didn't individuate at all or very little. 
And so they had a lot of the same values and beliefs and thoughts and feelings. And as our world expands and our kids expand their horizons, which I think is a really cool thing, a really good thing. I'm really proud of my kids. And the, the fact that they've spread their wings and found different places to live in the country, it does create the opportunity for a lot of rethinking things and pointing fingers and assuming the worst and having a lot of disconnect with parents. So, and I would say the other part of that, Steve, and I, don't, I didn't read the article, so I don't know all that was said. I, there's a lot of things I didn't do great sure. or, or even close to perfect. And I, I wouldn't say I have a lot of regrets, but I also have, um, yeah, just a lot of things that I know to this day that I could do better, be a little more patient, a little kinder, um, a little less, take stuff a little less personal, laugh at myself more, just a lot of these types of things. And I know for sure when my kids were young and there's a lot of stress financially and wanting everything to go a certain way, I, I didn't react great. Yeah. So, Well, you and me both. And I think that there's there's this tension between saying like, hey, if I have the right tools, then I can perfect parently. And that, that's just, that's not a, mm-hmm. that's not a fair pressure to all. impose on anybody or to receive ourselves. I just finished reading a parenting book where they mm-hmm. were doing um, a study interviewing parents of faith to be able to say like, hey, what did you do to help form your adolescence as people of faith? And one of the dads that they reached out to said, I don't know how I got nominated for this. Like, I'm not a very good dad at all. In fact, I had to apologize to my kids like three times in the last 48 hours. And the researcher said, well, the fact that you were self-aware enough to apologize to your kids three times in the last 48 hours shows that you're exactly the kind of person that we want to talk totally. to because that's not always not always normal. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think a lot of us have parents that maybe have hardly ever, if ever, apologized. And I think hopefully we've gotten better at that, of owning our mistakes and realizing that we um, have goofed up or screwed up in different times in different ways. And in my case, it's probably a little too harsh, a little too black and white with my kids and pretty high expectations about behaviors and attitudes and things. And so I think that's created stress. Go back to the stress thing a little bit. I think it's created stress on my children. And I feel bad about that because I I want them to have a lot of peace and joy in their life, not stress. So what are some of the tools and resources that you've been able to identify either in your own journey or through your research or your practice to help kids at different pivotal life stages manage that kind of stress and pressure? I think looking at first like what it looks like and identifying it because I think you can't really change something you can't identify or you don't realize you have. And I think a lot of people ignore it or tune it out or don't realize that's even stress. Um, Maybe they feel bad. I'll hear people say, or I'm really down. And in a lot of ways, it's stress slash anxiety. And we use those a lot interchangeably. Um, But I think stress and anxiety are just incredibly high in our society. It's the number one mental health issue in the world. And I think it's growing just as we keep amping things up in our society and the pace keeps going faster and faster and faster. So I think uh, being aware of it, identifying how I feel, identifying some of the associated things that um, I do with my thoughts, uh, maybe it manifests itself in physical ways um, with maybe headaches or teeth grinding or stomach problems. It's amazing how many students I talk to or their parents I talk to that have like their, their child has all kinds of stomach problems or stomach aches all the time and teeth grinding and just all kinds of sleep issues for adults and children. So I think identifying is one of the first things to do and and really finding out 
what um, they're feeling and how they're feeling and, and pointing to that fact that um, this is something that's real and, again, often manifests itself in physical ways okay. for sure. So I think that's something I try to help people do almost every day because I think tons and tons of people um, are struggling with it. So it's just so prevalent. How do you know when somebody's having like a stressful event or when they're having a stressful season? Because sometimes like final exams, some kids will have, you know, 38 hours of stress, but then sometimes there are other stressors that are on either end of that that end up t- turning into an extended season where where the pressure is compounding and the stakes are getting higher. Yeah, I think um, a lot of us run pretty hot or high with anxiety and I think if we just can't come down from that or we're always kind of stressed out is a good indicator that it could be a real problem. Okay. And again, I think with almost everything in life, it's not really a problem and, until it's inhibiting something else or creating problems. Okay. So, yeah, I, I get pretty tense. I get pretty wound up. I'll have clients say, but it really doesn't affect me. And so I think... When it starts affecting them, then it's a problem. And it may have been a problem for a while before that, but they just didn't identify it as so. So I think if it's an ongoing thing, like you just said, um, so something that's happening over time versus an incident or a one-time thing. But again, a lot of people even come in and go, yeah, I just had a panic attack. I thought I was going to die or really in bad shape. Had a panic attack. Or when I came to realize the panic attack is I went to the emergency room. They did all the tests on my heart and found out there's nothing wrong with my heart. It was just a panic that's an incident, but if they start looking back, they realize that it's been building for quite a while gotcha. with a job change or a loss in their family. And that's the other thing you see that's really hard with stress because it's like there is a lot of depressive elements to it or aspects. Almost always I found that there's some grief elements in it, mm-hmm. loss of death, losses, but just other losses. And during COVID season, just a ton of anxiety with um, isolation and just the losses of lifestyle and other aspects that we're used to, structures and uh, routines and things like that, that we've come to brings quality of life that we just haven't experienced a whole lot. And so I think that adds a lot of stress over time as well. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that sometimes comparison is a curse that prohibits me from fully naming a lot of my stress. Because COVID, for an example, you're like, well, everybody had problems Correct. during COVID. Yeah. And then be- because other people had it or maybe somebody else had it worse, in quotation marks, you tend to minimize what what you legitimately lost or never stopped to mourn from that season. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm a total chronic case of that. Like when I see 10 other people and go, they have a way worse and not really doing a good job of assessing my own stress. And being in the mental health field in the last year or so has been tremendously more intense than it has the first 28 years of my career. And just seeing the acuity, the intensity of stress and the demands on people's lives and the demand to change. I look at so many people and talk to so many people and go, they have it way worse. They lost their job. They lost their kids' school. They lost this. They lost that. And since they lost their job, they're losing their house. They're way behind their mortgage or their car payments and all this stuff. And so there's a lot going on for them. My life's pretty good. My kids are all gone. I don't have to deal with that. And, in fact, over time, it did start taking a toll. It started really impacting me, and I could definitely tell there's some stress building for me as well. And what have been the – not coping mechanisms, but what what have been the the pathways that you have mm-hmm. chosen to be able to say this is where I I kind of release some of the stress that's built up like a pressure valve. Yeah, and 
again, I, I'm going to sound cliche-ish, but I'm okay with that because I think prayer and just taking the extra time to pray and or listen, taking time away. And I can't listen while I pray well if I don't take time. Okay. And that's one thing that did allow for it in the last year or so, year and a half of COVID, is I had a little more time. And so I think I was more conscious and more diligent about taking that time to get along with God and just to really pray and to spend time with him and read and just making sure that that was solid and consistent. And so I think that's huge for me and for a lot of people. So that whole spiritual realm, I think reaching out for support, I think um, I, I, I think our office was closed one day and I was home for one week is during that first day when everything was announced about all the different mandates and everything with COVID, for instance, they, we didn't realize that we could stay open as a frontline mental health provider. So we closed for one day, got our ducks in a row, and then we opened back up. But I had already transitioned everybody onto Zoom um, platform so that I could meet with them virtually. And that week alone, I was telling my wife, like, ooh, this is hard and everything. And I'm not sure I can do this and everything. And she's like, you've been home for three days. You're going to be okay. So I think just being very intentional, social person, and an extrovert, I think staying connected with my people, guys, group, accountability partners, coworkers, friends, family, is super key for all of us. But for me personally, I can say that that's just a core element that helps me stay healthy, helps me manage my stress um, consistently and over many years. Um, the other thing that I do is movement. I think any kind of, I used to call it exercise more, but as you get older, you just call it movement. Okay. Because a lot of people, when you say it's intimidating, if you say, well, I go out and exercise a lot or do this a lot. And a lot of people are like, well, I can't run five sure. miles or 10 miles or I can't do this or that. So I just say any kind of movement's good walking, even a slow walk. But I think um, exercising, lifting weights for me, um, almost daily is a huge part of my life too. And it just changes my mindset. It just, those endorphins kick in and I can just tell a huge difference in my perspective on life, my life, the life or situation of other people. And it just helps tremendously. I heard one therapist say that we carry stressor in our bodies. And so if we can get our bodies to move, mm -hmm. it allows us to kind of to recenter, even if it's only for that window of time. Totally. Yeah. I, I think it's just a great reset for a lot of us. And I think it's underestimating. I think a lot of people don't realize it's actually way more powerful than natural endorphins versus like an antidepressant or anti-anxiety. Right. And so I think just making sure that you're getting, and again, it's easy to say and hard to do, especially if you tend to be more sedentary, mm -hmm. if you tend not to turn to that or never has, or your family didn't, and you just tend not to do that as much. So for me, it's almost a natural thing. Right. And I think for a lot of people that it's not, it's really hard to go, okay, what's my go-to if I've never exercised? to start doing that. Um, so I, so I realize that's really tough to do, but again, I highly recommend, and I do consistently with clients and helping them manage their stresses. Peter, I was attending an event for my kids elementary school years ago, and I was just making small talk with a guy. I'm like, oh, so what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm a divorce lawyer. And I go, well, tell me, are there ever, are there ever predictable milestones where marriages start to, to to struggle? Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh yeah. He's like, it's almost like clockwork. He goes, you're one, you're seven and you're 18 to 20. 
And I said, well, unpack that for me. He goes, year one, people finally realized that it's not what they thought it was going to be. Yep. Just kind of marriage is generically hard. He goes, year seven, he goes, usually the first kids start going away to elementary school. And if you've got one spouse who's staying at home not working, it can be wildly disorienting. It's kind of yep. like a intermediate empty nest. He's like, and then that 18 to 20 years, when the kids ship off, a yep. lot of couples realize that their whole orbit has been around their children. Absolutely. And they've just kind of lost their access. Does that sound close to true or wh where where do you see stressing seasons or stressing moments that couples can anticipate in their journey? Yeah, I think those are pretty clear milestones that we hit. And, and I would say we, as in my wife and I have hit. Okay. As I look back and go, yeah, that first year, I remember her reporting to people like at year three and four, like, yeah, that first year was terrible for me. I'm like, where was I? Because <laughs> I'm like, I had a blast. We were newly married. Things were going well in my mind. And I think for her, it was that just this whole sharing of her life and just the demands of now being a wife and yeah. just her perception and experience of all the things that had had to change or did change for her, not just her address, but just her last name and just sure. her whole world. And I guess for me, I was either just oblivious or in marital bliss or something. But yeah, I think those first couple years or so are really hard on couples and huge changes. I think kids leaving um, for school or school age kids, kids get in school. And I think just all the demands of being a parent. So it's, it's, you know, you say year three or four, but like when they start having kids, I think becoming parents and taking that on and then kids going to school, I think there's just a lot of stuff, moving parts and a lot of ladies I see, um, that are, have those school age kids that lose, have lost their identity and are really going, okay, who am I now? When do I want, where, how do I spend my time and energy? And guys are usually pretty solidly placed in the workplace um, or doing their thing. And again, this is broad because there's sure, a lot of, of different configurations of families and how things work. But yeah, I think those. And then for sure, I think um, you're just completely, which the stage you're in right now with um, adolescence and just all in is what I call it, just that all in season with the financial demands of teenage kids driving, getting them ready for college, and everything that costs some as grade schoolers or middle schoolers costs a lot in high school. Like, you know, it's not 10 bucks here, 20 bucks there, it's 100 right. bucks there, 200 bucks there for all different kinds of expenses and sports and things. And then they leave. It feels like overnight. And I remember talking with couples when I was in my 20s and 30s and they were just lamenting and stressing and struggling with empty nest. I'm like, you had to know this was coming. Right, right. Like <laughs> This is all a, part of the script. Right. And it's a good thing, right? You got them independent. They're doing their own thing. And I think that's true. And I think that was true for us. We were happy for them. But it's stressful. It's just a huge change. Like you said, that just that whole orbit around your kids and their needs and what they want and just every conversation, I'll say every other conversation, probably almost every conversation for us was, hey, what's going on with this one and talking logistics and what are you thinking here and you know, all this kind of stuff with high school, college stuff going on. So yeah, it's a it's a super busy demanding season. Then when that's kind of over or wrapping up, it can be pretty lonely and pretty isolating and pretty confusing as well. 
Peter, I, I know that my temptation as my oldest just turned 17 is to say like, oh, the clock is running. I've got one year to impart every remaining ounce of value and knowledge and wisdom and insight and hopes and dreams for my kid. And I'm realizing that in some ways that's kind of like an arbitrary or culturally defined deadline. Mm -hmm. So you've got kids who are all married and on their own. Like the parenting relationship doesn't end Not when your kids become legal adults. Not so how, how is that? A, how can that be a blessing to know that that? That it, the clock doesn't expire, like no, it doesn't it, it doesn't run to zero when they leave for college or even when they graduate from college. No, it, it changes for sure because you got to keep giving them more latitude and autonomy, which is good, and they need that, and you want that for them. But yeah, I think this the opportunities are probably less frequent for most of us, but I would say they're more intense when they come because they're coming to you hopefully or you're able to engage with them about pretty major stuff like buying houses, buying vehicles, and they're looking for input. Or, hey, would you fix this car if you know it's worth two, three grand and the, the repair is going to be 1500 when you do, Dad? Right. Those types of things. And so... And just character things, just talking about perseverance, talking about your faith and, hey, where are you guys going to church and how did church go this week? And just doing little prodding questions about where they're at spiritually. One thing that we're learning, and I would say I'm really average at at this point, is parenting my adult children's spouses. And I'm, just, I'm, I'm a total novice, and I tell them that all the time, like, hey, I'm trying. I probably goof it up. Because one, I, I know my kids well, and I know what they know what to expect from me and vice versa. Now I have this whole other adult person that's in their 20s that I know and know fairly well, all three of my um, in-law children. And I love them, and I think they're amazing people. But I just don't know exactly what they need and mm -hmm. what feels good to them and what's right and how much to get involved. And so you're just doing that dance all the time of trying to honor them and show them love, but not overstep or get too pushy or too huggy or whatever it might be. Yeah. And answering those questions are stressors all on their own. Yeah. Yeah, and, for sure. And sometimes we think we're having a fight over, or not a fight, we're, uh, a, a lively dialogue about who's going to spend which holidays where. And those conversations aren't scheduling conversations. They're relational dynamic mm. conversations. But a lot of times that I know that I did when I was the child didn't have the maturity to name that as such. Totally. You can't see, what's hap you can't see what no. the issues are underneath the waterline. Yeah, for sure. And along with that, so the, the holidays are a big one. I think for us a lot of times, too, is just the financial engagement with them of what's ours, what's theirs. And we have pretty good, clear boundaries and pretty well-defined, and we've been pretty open about it with them. But it's still murky a little bit because you want to just be careful to try to keep it pretty even and keep it balanced, not get too heavily involved with one couple financially, right. even if they need it more, and how does that, you know, just looking at all that. So, yeah, it's 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 a fascinating thing. And again, some people, some some of our kids would say, "Oh, it's you know they really helped us." And other kids would say, "Yeah, they didn't help us near enough, or we we would have liked them to help us more." But again, I think we try to just keep a good, healthy dialogue open and talk with them consistently and and, and about pretty major things, just to make sure that nothing's left unsaid or there's hurt feelings there. Peter, in a marriage, what's the best way to open up conversations where one spouse feels stressed? 
but might withhold that because they think the other spouse might also be experiencing stress and doesn't want to compound the stress. What What's a healthy way of knowing what to what to volunteer and when? I know, again, not to stereotype, but a lot of times dudes are like, well, life is hard for me. It's hard for everybody. I don't want to stress my spouse out by letting her know that I'm concerned about X, Y, and Z. So I'll just kind of stuff Barry and totally. keep grinding. Yeah, I think for sure guys tend to not verbalize as much and kind of bury it or hold it. And um, yeah, and or are irritated when their wife shares a lot because they just like, okay, how does this help? Right. How is this helping us? How is this helping me by us talking about it? It's not changing at all. But it really does for a lot of women, I think, processing it, sharing it, talking about their emotions. Even if there's not a lot they can do to change the situation, but talking about it does help them tremendously. And I think it does for guys if they're honest most of the yeah, time. sure. But I think a lot of it in my marriage of trying to ask good questions, which I'm still learning a lot about, even though I've been talking about that, speaking about it, reading about it for years and years and years, I still don't do that well. I usually give my opinion, say how I'm feeling, tell my wife how I'm feeling or how she should feel even at times. And I think trying to step back and ask her a couple of good questions. And then the best thing that most of us can do is just shut our mouths and listen okay. and just let them talk. And hopefully we get that same opportunity where I can express kind of how I'm feeling or what's going on for me a little bit. But I do think wading in slowly because I think if, if I just unload about something, it can really compound it or make it more stressful in the household with my wife. Um, if she already has a fear about one of our kids or some choice they're making, and then I add to that my all my thoughts and feelings, it, it does, it can really make it more um, intense for her. And I think agreeing with her, listening to her, and then adding maybe a little bit to it is good. But I think, again, really jumping in and, and sharing all my thoughts and feelings does not help. So there is a fine line there. Sure. Peter, if you had one encouragement or one action step towards anybody who's listening who might feel like they're experiencing pretty acute stress right mm -hmm. now, what would it be? I, I think I'm really taking time again to step back, to really consider what God's trying to do in that situation. I think trying to engage other people, have other people go, hey, are you seeing this? When are you asking people what they're seeing in them? And then I think really taking some specific action steps. Uh, to, and again, this isn't over like a course of five minutes or ten minutes. I'm talking over a course of a week or two or a month. I think engaging other people to help, whether it's friends or family or a counselor or a coach. And then I think really starting to look at how can I make some changes, like make, doing some movement, again, some exercise, really helps people. I think considering maybe onboarding medication, if that seems to be a good option for them based on some of the support people, doctors, counselors, coaches, friends saying, yep, this is something I could totally see that would help. And then this whole thing we really haven't talked a lot about, which is key, is really changing my thinking. And I think just looking at my thoughts and looking at how I look at things and what my thought process is. And I think for most people that are pretty anxious, it's a pretty negative thought process pretty negative pattern. And again, we just don't see it as that because that's our, our, we can't see our own thoughts very easily, sure. our thought patterns. And, and so looking at those and realizing how those just keep perpetuating that constant fear and anxiety in us. 
It's good to hear you say that, though, that we do sometimes when we've been exposed to those thought patterns for so long, we think that it's just kind of carved a rut mm-hmm. in our brain yeah. and it's all we know. Totally. And I think my exposure to winning at home has been so empowering for me because I'm realizing, oh, I, I get to choose. Like I have some agency yep. in what kind of thoughts I choose to nurture and plant and circle around. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think a lot of us just constantly are or consistently, maybe not constantly, maybe overestimating the bad. I'm overestimating consequences, underestimating resources that are out there, or one of which is our own ability to cope with things, and then really not understanding how our true identity is based in Christ. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of us just look at us as our circumstances around us and see ourselves in a negative light and totally lose sight of how God sees us and, and our potential that he sees in us. And, and in your experience, how has anchoring one's identity in Christ changed perspective uh, and posture? I think it's vital. I think it's essential. I think so many of us just don't have a picture of how Christ sees us. And if we do, we have a small glimpse. And I think just few of us really understand how he loves us, cares for us, and what he wants for our lives. And I think the more we can get ebbed in Scripture and find people that pray for us and pour into us. It just changes our whole outlook. And a lot of people we talk to here at Winnie at Home have had really damaging backgrounds and pasts. And so they've had parents that have been really hurtful or abusive toward them. So their image of themselves and of God and of parenting is just really broken and dysfunctional. And it just impacts everything they do and how they see themselves. And so I think um, really recalibrating that and getting that healthier and a more Christ-like perspective is key. Awesome. Peter, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate what, you, what you're doing in my own life, what you're doing at Winning at Home, and uh, all the great work that you're doing to serve our clients well. You're welcome. I, I love it. I feel blessed to get to hang with you a little bit today, Steve, and in general, and to be at Winning at Home. We're just being blessed, and some really cool things are happening. No, it's a blast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.